Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will stubble, will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be like ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the... He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to the parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, as David has already prayed, we're asking you to bless us in this time, in this hour at the end of the day, to come and to worship You and to hear once again You speak to us from Your Holy Word. And it's our prayer, Father, as we, ha- we always pray in the name of Jesus, that You will give us eyes to see and ears to hear it in order to discern and to become wise and to become holy Yours and, and to be pure in heart and to know that peace that passes understanding in our heart in this world where there is turmoil after adversity after struggle. You are our God. We declare this with our heart and our mind and our soul. You are our Lord. And we proclaim, Father, that Your Gospel is the best news. And that it is a power that brings salvation into the lives of of humans. We pray, Father, that as we spend the next few minutes studying and opening up these sacred texts, that it will be a time for us to refresh our minds and our hearts and to learn. And, and to learn more deeply and profoundly of, of your will and your way in this world and in particular our individual lives. Father, bless us and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, tonight, we are uh, going to recap the last 49 sermons. <laughs> And then we're going to talk about the intertestamental period. And then if there's time, you can get out of the pew and go to work tomorrow morning. <laughs> no, it's, we're, we're really going to move very, very quickly. Uh, we're not going to touch, obviously, on all 49 lessons that have taken us all the way through the Old Testament. But we are going to recap because there is that statement that we make at the very beginning of the, uh, of the, of the sermon. That is this. The Bible is not a collection of random stories, but one story about God, about man, about what went wrong and what God is doing to put it back together again. And I'm just going to give you some words tonight. Very simple, and I want you to write them down. The Bible, as you know, begins with God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. The storyline is of the Bible beginning in Genesis and going all the way to the maps is God. But it doesn't just stop with the reality of God. This God, in verse 1, created, which is the second word. 
The world is not here by accident. It was created by God and He pronounced His approval on it. He said that the creation is tov. Which means that when it's good, it is, it is the exact representation of what He had in His imagination. And all of creation rejoices in that and completes the circle of praise by returning that praise to God. In Psalm 19, beginning in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. They have, uh, they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Have you ever asked yourself, the question, why we're so moved by creation? Why do, do people, like my neighbor down the street who is a runner and likes to refer to the woods, McAllister Park that's near our house, as his cathedral? It's because uh, in some intuitive way we sense that when we're with cre in creation, the creation is singing the praises of God. And yet one of the things that we notice about creation is that creation flees from us. The birds fly from us. The squirrels scamper up trees. The cats move out. It's because they know that we are in a quarrel with their Maker. Which leads us to this very sad twist in the story, which is fall and sin. Adam and Eve are in the garden and life is good. They're told you can eat anything you want, but you cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, how simple is that? How easy is that? They have a great place to live. Every need is taken. They are walking in the cool of the evening with God. Everything is wonderful, but humans are humans and nothing more. And the servant appears and creates an attitude of disdain about the Word of God. Did God really say, and he's kind of got this note of how ridiculous it must be, that you can't eat of the tree? And the woman in hearing these words thinks about it and she makes this decision to not trust God and she eats of the tree and she gives some to the man and their eyes are opened and sin enters into the world and it infects everything and anything. And God discovers it and confronts the serpent and the woman and the man and in the end He says in verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life both what? Thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the briars and the thistles and the thorns not only are, are just the pronouncement, they, they infect everything. The thorns and the thistles are just not in the ground, but they get inside human hearts. And Cain kills Abel. And then Lamech, uh, in a song, describes how there was this young man that heard him and how he killed that young man. And then you have the earth so filled with evil and so filled with turmoil and so much hatefulness and so much ungodliness and evil. All of that wickedness grieves the heart of God and He grieves in His heart that He had ever created it. And there's, in Genesis 6, the Noahic flood. And you would think that with the new beginning with Noah and his family and two of each of the, uh, the unclean animals and more of that of the, the clean animals, that with this rainbow in the sky and the promise never to destroy, that everything would be hunky-dory. But you're not but just a couple of chapters later in the Bible when you run into the Tower of Babel and it's the same old, same old. It's men trying to get into the face of God, not recognizing the fact that He is Creator, not recognizing the fact that He is Sovereign and Father, but trying to get into His face. 
It's the same old, same old. But then in chapter 12 of Genesis, we run into this fellow by the name of Abraham. He is called out of Ur of the Chaldees to leave everything and go to the land that God will show him. It's going to be the promised land. And the get up and the go is going to be based on a lot of incentives, on a lot of blessings that are great. And Abraham says, okay, I'll do it. And he does so, sort of. He leaves Ur of the Chaldees. He goes north into Haran. And he stays there until his father Terah dies. And he heads down at that point into the land. And there are some great things that happen. He flourishes financially. He becomes a force to be reckoned with by all of the other peoples in the land. But not all is perfect in the promised land. He lies a couple of times about his wife being his, not his wife, but his sister, which technically was not a lie, but it wasn't the truth and certainly not faith and trust in God. And beyond all of that, you know, beyond all of the things that he's flourishing with and are multiplying and, and the influence that he has in the land, he doesn't have a son. And this is one of the biggest struggles in his life is he tries to reconcile the fact that God has said you're going to have a son. And he can see all of the different kinds of doors that could open for him and he opens all of those doors and yet it all falls on his face. And he struggles to trust God completely. And then God shows up one day and he says, I want you to know that all of these things that you've been doing, they've not worked out, and there's a reason why. It's because I'm the one that's going to give you a son, and I'm going to give you a son through that wife over there, that wife, Sarah. Sarah, your wife. The emphasis in the Hebrew is that God is going to make it happen through Sarah. And we have one of the most important passages, not just in Genesis, but the entire Bible. Paul will build much of his theology of Romans on this passage and this event out of Genesis 15. Then he, Abraham, believed. He trusted God. And he reckoned it to him. That is, God credited it, reckoned it to him as righteousness. And what that passage says is that God is doing something. He reckoned, he credited to Abraham righteousness where there certainly wasn't any. That was a marvelous thing that God was doing. And so all of the briars and the thorns that have entered into everybody's life and the, and, and the way that they have created turmoil and trouble and stress and anxiety, all of a sudden the story begins to be filled with hope. And Abraham and Sarah have a son named Isaac and Isaac and Rebekah have two sons named Esau and Jacob. They're twins. But Jacob comes out a little bit late and he's holding the, he comes out second, he's holding the heel of his brother Esau and he becomes a supplanter. He is the, the, the one who is going to be always trying to deceitfully and through his own intrigues to be able to get his, his own way. And there is a name change for Jacob later in the story. Jacob becomes, in this name change, Israel. And Israel is not perfect, but God continues to bless him and to work with him. And Jacob, again, is a guy who works hard and sometimes deceitfully to make his way in his life. Jacob is a guy that doesn't really trust anybody but his own wits and what he's able to accomplish by, by his own wiliness. But God keeps working with him. That's one of the things that comes out about God. It's God's incredible patience to keep working with these individual humans that are, you know, humans are humans and nothing more. And he, he keeps working with Israel to trust God the way that his, his grandfather Abraham did. And Jacob, this Israel has sons. These sons become the twelve tribes of Israel. And one of these sons, through family intrigue, they hate the kid. They hate their little brother. And they get rid of him and they end up selling him off to, to some traders who take him into Egypt. 
But while he's there in Egypt, God has favor on this one that has been exiled away from the country by his brothers, betrayed by his brothers. And he rises to the top. He is exalted by God. It's not by his own power, but God is the one that exalts him. And he exalts him right up to the spot right next to Pharaoh. And this is all God's doing. And the reason part of this is taking place is because there's a huge famine back in the land. And God will save this family He has chosen, although the famine is trying to do them in. And Israel moves his family to Egypt where they live for over four centuries, but the briars and the thorns have followed them, have followed the people to Egypt. And there's a favor that rises up that becomes ruler over all the land that does not recognize the, the name of Joseph, that son. And, and they are enslaved, but God hears their cries. And God raises up this fellow by the name of Moses. And God works through Moses. God works through His servant Moses through these plagues to bring Pharaoh in Egypt to its knees. That tenth plague. Out of all of those plagues that were horrible, 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 the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. But the people of Israel survived because of the blood of a victim. A lamb, in this case. The most innocent of animals. The blood of a lamb who gave up its life in order for Israel to have a new kind of life. Away from slavery and free and in the world. And the people of Israel experience this great exit, this exodus from Egypt. God is leading them, and God is protecting them, and God is feeding them. And He leads them all the way to Mount Sinai, where He makes a covenant with them and forms them into a nation. They're there nine to twelve months being formed into this nation. This nation that would create a godly culture in the world that's full of briars and thorns. And part of that, as you know, is the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Ten Words of God. And as a nation, they would be blessed by God, and this would be a witness to the reality of God and the greatness of His love. The relationship with God in Israel would be, in many respects, a throwback to the relationship between God and Adam and Eve in the garden. He would bless them, and they would flourish, and everything would be fertile. And it starts off well enough, except for that little incident with the golden calf. And the people make offer that promised land leaving Egypt and going up through the Sinai Peninsula towards the southern end of, of the Promised Land. But that old trust issue, it becomes a problem again at this place called Kadesh Barnea. In the book of Numbers, the spies go up into the land, but they come back convinced that they cannot take the land after all they've seen, after all they've been through, after all the things that God has said to them and proved over and over and over again that He is not just sovereign, but lovingly sovereign in their life. They will not trust God again. And God becomes enraged. And rightly so. And God is, is ready to to completely, completely destroy the people. Start all over again. He'll start, he'll start with Moses. But Moses is a righteous man, the meekest man upon the entire planet. And he intercedes for the people. And God, God says, all right. And, and Moses says, I, I, I just ask for one thing. Let me see you. Let me see your glory. And there at the end of Exodus... God passes in, in front of, of, of Moses and, and, and shows him His glory and His compassion and His mercy. But this time the people have gone too far. And God is enraged with them. And Moses intercedes again. 
But this time there is, there's, not going, there's not going to be a, a, a nation that had come out of Egypt that has seen the glory of God and is going to go into... That generation is going to wander in the desert for 40 years until that untrusting and faithful generation is gone. And four decades later, 40 years later, a new generation is ready to take the land under the leadership of Joshua. And Moses is kind of concerned about it because he knows something about people. That humans are humans and and nothing more. And Moses in the book of Deuteronomy tells him in a couple of sermons that you need to remember, 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 remember. Remember all of the ways that God has taken care of you. Remember of all of the punishments, the curses. Remember what God has said. Remember the blessings. Remember all of this stuff. And then God takes Moses up on top of a mountain and shows him the land. And then Moses passes away and God buries him. But it's Joshua now that's going to lead the people into the land. And there are ups and downs as they go into the land, but in the end, Israel becomes settled in the promised land. Now, earlier in the story, God had warned them that one day they would begin to clamor for a king, and that would not be a good thing. That would be a bad thing. They would want to be like everyone else. Instead of being the people in a unique relationship with God, in a relationship with Him that through faith and through trust, God would bless them, and it would be a throwback to that time in which God and and, and Adam and Eve coexisted and loved each other and praised each other. Instead of that kind of a relationship that would be a light in the darkness of the world, they said, no, we'd rather have a king. We'd like to be like all of the other nations. They're not good. They were to see Him. They were to see God as their king forever. And finally the day arrives after lots of judges and lots of run-ins with the Philistines. First king is Saul does okay for a while, seems to have a nervous breakdown, and, and which leads to, to some incredible unfaithfulness on his part. Then David arrives on the scene, a man after God's own heart. And after David, there's Solomon, who is the wisest man who ever lived. But it's here that the wheels begin to come off the wagon again, as Israel is beginning to, 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 to hit apex in its greatness and its glory and begin to expand and, and to be mighty and a, a force to be reckoned with on the world stage. It's through this king that other gods, and not only the God of heaven, are brought into the land. And the irony here is that it's this Solomon who builds the temple in Jerusalem to honor God. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but then we're reminded that humans are humans and and nothing more. Solomon dies. Rehoboam becomes the king of Israel. Rehoboam does not listen to the wisdom of the old men. He splits the kingdom. Jeroboam the first takes the ten tribes to the north. Rehoboam takes two tribes to the south. Those ten tribes in the, in the north do not do well spiritually. The kings of the northern tribes do not encourage trust in God. In fact, they set up rival places of worship. There's idolatry. The briars and the thorns begin to get into the people's hearts and minds again. Spiritually, they begin circling the drain. But God is working patiently with His people. God loves His people. God loves His creation. And God sends the prophets, famously Amos, another one, Hosea, to bring them to their senses. They do not listen. And God finally brings judgment on them. The Assyrians strike and destroy them completely. And those ten tribes, for all intents and purposes, are gone. The southern two tribes fare a little better. They last about 150 years longer. They have good kings and bad kings and then good kings and then bad kings. The prophets come also to them to bring them to their senses. But God is grieved in His heart 
of what has become of His people. He brings judgment upon those southern two tribes in South Judah. The Babylonians, the Assyrians took the ten tribes away. The Babylonians come and destroy and carry the people off into a 70-year captivity. They're in exile. But God had promised them through the prophets that He would bring them back from Babylonian captivity, and He did. He also, through His prophets, began to speak of a special servant who would come and do what Israel, the nation, had not been able to do. He would be the anointed of, uh, of God. He would be anointed by the Spirit of God. He would bring good news to the afflicted. He would bind up the brokenhearted. He, re- he would proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners. He would comfort all who mourned. And the prophet Isaiah would say that there would be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And then at the end of Isaiah 55, instead of the thorn bush, the cypress is going to come up. And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. That God would bring a true king and this king would reverse everything. The effects of sin in the horizontal relationships between people. It would reverse the effects of sin between he and his people. This king would take the briars and the thorns and the nettles. All of those symbolic pieces of the curse from Genesis chapter 3 beginning in verse 15 and would turn it into something beautiful that flourishes. But it would be in the distant future. But for now, the people would return and they would rebuild. Zerubbabel, Joshua the priest, Ezra and Nehemiah are the main players here. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the wall. They spiritually experience the revival when Ezra opens up the Word of God and it's read to the people and the guys underneath them are translating it and telling what it means so that they can understand it. They experience the revival of God's nearness. But as we saw this morning, as the decades begin to pass, that secularization begins to set in. The transcendence of God, the the, the great oomph of God's holiness on their heart is no longer there. They, They go from religious revival. It diminishes down to lip service. They're going through the robotic motions of worship. And there comes a period of about 400 years of silence. But that did not mean that God was not active. active. I mean, that's one of the, the, the main points of the book of Esther. And there are, are many ways to think of this period of silence, but there are two words to suffice, it, suffice explanation or, or at least the his, historical angles for our purposes tonight. The first is violence. Is violence. Those Babylonians that took over from the Assyrians would fade into the Persians. Alexander the Great of Macedon would foray into Israel, bringing Greek culture with him. He would die in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar II in Babylon at the age of 32 and leave Israel in the hands of one of his generals, Ptolemy I, about 323 B.C. And Ptolemy was down in the area of Egypt. The Ptolemaic Empire, its hold on Israel would slip to that of the Seleucid dynasty. That Seleucus was just a wretched individual. He was mean-spirited, not afraid to assassinate anybody that got into his way, and and it carried on throughout his dynasty. The Seleucids would try to make Israel this great Hellenistic nation in the Middle East. 
And there's this uh, Seleucid king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who's ruling out of Syria. He's operating out of, out of Syria to the north that thought that it would be a great idea to change the religious direction of Israel from independence to service to him. And so he takes over the temple on December 25th, 167 B.C., deliberately desecrating it in order for the Jews to never think of it as a place where they have their uniqueness affirmed. He's thinking to himself, if I can raise up that, that uh, statue of Zeus, that idol of Zeus in their most holy place, then that would keep them from thinking that that place, when we go to worship our God there, is a place where our uniqueness is affirmed. He desecrated it. And not only that, he set up worship of himself there, which is the, 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 the entailment of desecration. It was the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about. And none of this set well with the Jews. This priest, this, this old priest by the name of Mattathias and his boys who lived in the village of Modane to, to, the, to the west of Jerusalem decided that they had had enough. And he had a, a, a young son, the oldest of those Maccabean boys, a fellow by the name of Judas. They take out those Syrians when they finally arrive, not in 167 when, with the desolation of desecration, but one year later, they finally get to their village to force them to worship like pagans. And they say, we're not going to do it. And Mattathias says, nope, it's not going to happen. And the revolt starts. And it's the Maccabean crisis that you sometimes read about. It's the Maccabean revolt. Three years to the day after the desecration, Judas cleanses and reconsecrates the temple. And the Jews have independence for about 100 years. They set up their own priesthood at that point. There's a lot of fragmentation in that. We'll talk about it in just a couple of minutes. But it, it's not, even though they, they are ruling themselves for about a century, a little over a century, it's not great. And then Rome appears in Palestine about 63 B.C. That old emperor, Pompey, walks into the Holy of Holies. The nerve of that guy. And from that point on, the Jews are going to see Rome as the new Kittim, the pulverizers of Israel. They're going to be the great new enemy. They're going to be the powers of darkness in the Jewish eyes against the children of light. Well, Rome is going to stay on the scene. They arrive in Palestine in 63 B.C. Uh, Pompey walks into the Holy of Holies, starts off things... In, in, a, in a revolting kind of way. In the 40s, just not too many years later, in the 40s, there's a revolution, revolutionary moment in Galilee. Varus, who is the general in charge of the army, returns from Syria and he settles the rebellion by cruelly crucifying 2,000 of the insurgents up and down the roads of Israel. And every year as the people traveled to Jerusalem for the great festivals, there would be the expectation that this year the Messiah, the branch that Zacharias spoke about, would lead, the, would lead the remnant of faithful back into the glory days. Herod arrives on the scene about the time that Varus is doing all of this with the crucifixions. He's the Roman appointed king. He's sort of half Jewish, half Edomian means that he's got... Edom blood in him somewhere down the road, some Edom DNA, which because of the word of Obadiah is never going to make him popular among the, the people. And he, and he, he rules in, in sort of an iron-fisted way, but there is somewhat a, a, a peace in the land, but as he lay dying in 4 B.C., 
a group of hotheads tear down the Roman eagle that's erected above the temple gate. Everyone involved in that is punished severely. And even as Herod dies, there's a revolt that's taking place in Jerusalem at Passover in protest of the treatment of those that have torn down that Roman eagle. And Archelaus, who's going to be king in Herod's place, he, puts the, he lowers the boom. He drops the anvil down on those people. It is just a violent, violent, violent time. And we, even, we don't have time to talk tonight about the Lestai, the, the, the brigands or, or the, 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 the robber bandits that, that some sort of speculate become the zealots. But there's a tremendous amount of violence in the land. There's also fragmentation. It's at this point that the scholars begin to talk about not just Judaism, but Judaisms. When you read Josephus, one of the things that he points out is that by this time in, in Jewish history, there are four main philosophies of Judaism. You have those Pharisees. The Pharisees have, have, have arisen around the time of the Maccabean revolt. They're the people who understand that, that there are pagans in the land. And the Pharisees in the main are up in the north around Galilee. They're on the, in, on the area where they are bordered around the Decapolis and Galanitis. And they understand the importance of obeying Torah to, remain, to, to retain their identity in the land. And the Pharisees will just about believe anything. They believe not only Torah and the prophets and the writings... But all of the oral traditions that are beginning to swirl in the land of Israel as the rabbis are explaining the, the Scripture to the people again, they believe that that's every bit as inspired. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in angels. They believe in an afterlife. They believe in all of these different things. But they are incredibly legalistic. And in their legalism, they are hypocritical. And they, in the main, are, are a force to be reckoned with politically and religiously influential ways in Israel during the time of Jesus. And sort of the opposite of the Pharisees are the Sadducees. These are the fellows who are the aristocrats around Jerusalem. They are the priestly group. They're the ones who do not believe in angels. They don't believe in a spirit world. They don't believe in a resurrection. They believe that you have what you have here. And that's why they are wealthy and have made their compromises and made their contracts and made their, their relationship with Rome a, a pretty strong one because they tend to benefit. There's no afterlife. What you have is what you have in this life. And so they make the most of it. And these Sadducees are going to see Jesus as, as a threat to their relationship with Rome and the status quo, and especially the income that comes in from the temple precincts. You have the Essenes. The Essenes, basically a, 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 a pacifist group who believed that they were the true priestly group in Israel. The, the biggest group of Essenes known is in the Qumran area to the, to the northwest end of the Dead Sea. There is some speculation uh, that there was an Essene quarter in the old city of Jerusalem. But the Essenes in 70 A.D., nobody knows what happened to them. They just disappeared with the revolt of, of, of the Jews and the destruction of Jerusalem. Which brings us to the Zealots. The, the Zealots are, are the ones that, in many ways, there, there, there's a similarity between the Pharisees and the Zealots. The Pharisees had two heroes, Elijah and Phineas. Both of those were not afraid to kill people when it came to zeal for Torah. The Zealots, on the other hand, are, are not so much religiously motivated as they are politically motivated, and they are ready by any means to get Rome's hobnail boot off of their throat. 
And it's these zealots that about three decades after the time of Jesus in 66 A.D. begin in the north a revolt against Rome. And Rome just raises the ground and scorched earth all the way down to Jerusalem, lay siege to Jerusalem, destroy it in one of the most awful destructions of a, of a modern city. And then they go down in the, in the middle 70s and wipe out the zealots at Masada. And then we have this, this passage out of Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 that says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Into all of that history where people are just so... They struggle so profoundly to trust God and to be obedient to God and to love God and to live with the love of God and the presence of God and the blessings of God as their treasure. And not only that, it's a time of violence. People are not afraid to pull the knife. People are not afraid to, to go to the mattresses. People are not afraid to go to war to fight for their independence. That is one of the ways that they view this promise of God to restore the remnant that it would be a nation again like it had been under David and Solomon. And on top of that, you have oppression in the land and injustice as there are people that are taking from the poor and making themselves richer. We have during this period of time the day laborers that begin to show up because the people are becoming impoverished. The taxation during this period of time that would lead to much of this violence at some point, the scholars say, was nearly 70% of their income. And they can't even get along religiously. They can't even agree on the right calendar to use. One uses a solar calendar, calendar one uses a lunar calendar. There is a Mason-Dixon line that runs through the middle of Israel that is every bit as deep and profound as the one that runs through Tennessee. And that's why they would never show up in Jerusalem on the right days, on, the, on, the, on, on a consensual day for Passover or booths or, or any of the other religious holidays. Because they were using different calendars. They, 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 there was prejudice and there were biases against each other. And each of them had different agendas. During this period of time, there were, there were so many ideas about what the Messiah would look like. And not that there would be just one Messiah, but there could possibly be three Messiahs that would show up. And it's into this time that the Incarnation takes place. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, when the fullness of time had come. You talk about an inhospitable time for Jesus to be born. I can't think of one, except maybe our own today, that would be more hateful and inhospitable to the Son of God becoming flesh. Next uh, Sunday morning, we're going to begin to look at the life of Jesus. But I remind you that this, this story, this one story, it's not just a compendium of myths. It's not just a compilation of, of, of fables and, and mythological stories and, and just wise sayings. It's this, this book that is put together that we call the Bible is one story. It's about God and it's about man and what, what, what went wrong. How the briars and the thorns became such a part of our existence and what God is doing to put it back together again. And God has been working behind the scenes. And there is this moment where the greatness of eternity focuses all the way down with the voice of an angel to talk to a priest by the name of Zechariah in Jerusalem. 
and tells him that his son is going to be the herald of the Messiah. That same angel, Gabriel, shows up the, the greatness of, of infinity comes down to the tip of a spear that's in the room with, with a young virgin by the name of Mary. It says, the Messiah, the Son of God, is going to be born in you. And all of a sudden, all of the history where people are not trusting God and it's briars and thorns and briars and thorns find their hope in this One who is in His death burial and resurrection going to reverse the effects of sin. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. We're going to sing praise to God for the greatness of, of and, and the beauty and the majesty of His blessing to us. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. If there are any ways that we can minister to you tonight as a church to help you with your spiritual life, your relationship to God, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds. Let's stand and praise God together.